of um, Hebrews as we continue in uh, this uh, chapter. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 29, uh, 25 through 29. I came to this for a specific reason, uh, which you'll hear in just a moment. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Let's start reading in verse um, 18 and then follow down to the end of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, a darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they cannot endure the, uh, the order that was given. For even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come, here's the contrast, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festive gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkling blood, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but, uh, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship and reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. You may be seated. Let's go to prayer. Please pray for me as I seek to preach this text and pray for yourselves. As you sit under the proclamation of God's word this morning, let us pray. <clears throat> oh, our God and Father, we pray for your grace. As we sit under this, as I preach this word, as a congregation sits under the proclamation of this great, glorious text, and we pray in spite of my own failings, uh, my inabilities my weaknesses, that you would bless me anyway and cause your word to go forth open hearts and minds, O oh God, to work effectively your grace, to cause us to be more like Christ and cause us, O oh God, to be less like the world and cause us, Heavenly Father, to treasure the things that are truly eternal. In Christ's name, amen. We are living in a divided country. Indeed, we are living in a divided uh, world. It's so obvious, obvious is it, that not even a, a Pollyanna a mentality could deny the divisions that are existing all around us. The United States, as far as I know, has not been as divided as this is since the war between uh, the states and the time following that called, as you know, Reconstruction. Charles Sumner, May 20th, 1856, made a speech against slavery in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, 
was introduced by a man named Stephen A. Douglas. I'm not going to tell you who Stephen A. Douglas is because I'm sure all of you know who Stephen Douglas was. The act would allow the question of slavery to be answered by the populace. In other words, Congress would have nothing to do with it, and those who occupied those territories would make the decision about slavery. It nullified the Missouri Compromise, which I'm sure you all know what the Missouri Compromise was. It outlawed slavery above the 36th parallel. It basically nullified that by allowing Kansas and Nebraska to make the decisions themselves by their own people. Well, there was a fiery speech given by a man named Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate. On the floor of the Senate, he criticized a relative of a man named Preston Brooks. If he had believed Sumner to be a gentleman, he would have challenged him to a duel, but he did not do that. What happened was Preston Brooks walked into the Senate. Um, Charles Sumner was sitting at a large table getting his papers together. And uh, Preston Brooks began to beat him with a cane. The cane was for dealing with unruly dogs. It had a silver head on top of it, and he beat him. And he beat him, and he beat him until the cane splintered. And you can hear the clapping of the wood throughout the Senate chamber. This went on for about a minute, and Preston Brooks came close to killing Mr. Sumner. A nation divided. As all of you know, passions are running deeply right now. They are running deeply over whether or not to wear a mask. There are some who think if you wear a mask, you're silly because the mask doesn't do anything. There's others who think if you don't wear a mask, you're being inconsiderate and rude because a mask does have some efficacy. And then again, uh, we in politics, uh, there are those who believe that the uh, election was stolen by fraud Others who believe that it was not, and so on and on we go. Where's the solution? Is it possible? Is it possible that we are giving too much emphasis of the things of the world and not nearly enough emphasis for the kingdom of Christ? How much passion do you have for the kingdom of Jesus? How willing are you to remonstrate for the cause of the gospel? Or is it simply not that important? What really is important is whether or not you wear a mask. What really important is who is in the White House. That's of the utmost importance, not Jesus. And Jesus isn't even able to give healing in this matter because, you see, we're divided and nobody even seems to think it's a big deal. According to what the writer to the Hebrews puts in these verses... It is something that causes us, that summons us, that sobers us to embrace what is really important, and that is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that God has given to us through Jesus an everlasting kingdom? Do you believe that everyone who is a part of that kingdom are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you believe that we will be with one another in glory 
Not for today, not for tomorrow, but for all eternity. Do you believe that? Do you believe that we are united through him and that we are a family? That's what the Bible teaches us. And that, it seems to me, in some cases, has been forgotten. Would have to see this uh, this morning because God has given us a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom. Our commitment and passion should be for the one who is the head of that kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are called to that as a matter of fact. So the first thing then, our possession of the kingdom should be tenaciously clung to, should be tenaciously cherished. The writer consistently throughout the book of Hebrews argues from the lesser to the greater. He also consistently throughout the book of Hebrews is concerned to encourage them to hold on to their faith. There are some, as you well know, who are apostatizing the church. They're going back to worship in the temple. And they are doing so because it was the religion of Abraham, it was the religion of Isaac, the religion of Jacob, the religion of Moses, the religion of their parents. That is what they knew. And they were getting along quite well when they were Jews. But now that they have become Christians, well, it has become rather difficult. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes partnered with those who were thus treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. This is how they were, they were uh, exposed to those or partnered with those who were just treated, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And the knowledge of this fact is an encouragement to us to live, hopefully, in the face of death, to live in confidence in the face of death, to live in hope when we lose someone, but we are convinced that there is something better for us that is yet to be experienced. They were suffering for the cause of Christ. And so they were growing less encouraged. They were growing less attentive to the things of the Lord. Uh, And what can drive us away from that? Well, there's some things that can drive us away from that, such as a disappointment in God's providence. There are many in the church today who equate Trump's loss to a bad bit of providence on the part of God. Well, no, it's not. God has not made a mistake. Our God rules, and he rules, and who he chose to be in there is going to fulfill that office. That's the way it is. You may like it. You may love it. You may despise it. You may hate it. It doesn't matter. What matters is, through all of the things that we experience, we trust Christ. We trust the God who loves us more than we can ever think or imagine. And the writer is trying to build fires of faith, as I'm trying to build fires of faith under this congregation this morning. An abiding trust and a first place for Christ in all things. Well, he does this four ways. He reminds them of the preeminence of Christ in the first place. And we read that in these opening uh, verses of chapter 1 of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, however, we may say, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance 
of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is speaking about Jesus Christ. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So in his attempt to encourage them to remain true to the faith, he reminds them of the preeminence of Christ, that Christ is at the right hand of God. He opposes all things. He reminds them of the danger of falling away. In chapter 6, he says, if you reject Christ, if you trample underfoot the Lord Jesus Christ, you're lost. Where will you go for salvation? Once you reject Christ, there is no place for you to go. He reminds you of the danger of falling away. No renewal. For there's no other place to go for, for salvation. The third thing is, uh, he rem- reminds them of those who had maintained their faith in the most trying of times. This is throughout the book. They suffered, but they didn't reject. They continued to abide in faith. They continued to abide in trust. They continued to abide in hope. Hebrews 5, Hebrews 10, and Hebrews 12, which I'm not going to read that. And then, of course, the Hall of Fame chapter, which is, uh, chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. He defines faith, or at least he doesn't really define it. He uh, tells uh, what, how it works. In chapter 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And because of this conviction, you see, on the part of those of old, he goes through and he names all of these people that he lists here in uh, this text, and the things that they did simply because they trusted God. Abraham believed God. And so he left her of the Chaldees and went to the promised land. Abraham believed God, so he was going to sacrifice his son as the Lord had told him. And we read in the book of Hebrews that he knew Had he done that, God would raise him up from the dead. You see there, that man was a man of faith. So this great chapter demonstrates to us how these people lived their lives of those who trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it said some of them were sown in half. Yet they did not reject the faith. They did not reject Christ. And then it says this, that they looked forward to the blessings that were to come. Did they receive the fullness of the promises of God? And the answer is no, they did not. Have you received the fullness of the promises of God to come? No, we have not. The fullness of those promises will not be ours until, as we read in the book of Acts, in chapter 1, men of why do you stand looking up into the sky to say Jesus is going to come back in the way that he left? And then in the book of Thessalonians, we read that in a moment he will come back and we will be caught up with Christ in the clouds. So they would not receive these blessings before we did, he says, in the book of Hebrews. Nonetheless, they were so convinced of the reality of these promises coming true that they were willing to die for the cause of the gospel. Christ first, ever and always. So he is encouraging them to... Remain firm in the faith through these things. And here in this chapter, chapter 12, he says this, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. See to it that you do not refuse him who 
is speaking. This is a negative, but it is an exhortation. We may translate this, beware, take heed. Take heed that you do not refuse him. You know, the most important <clears throat> decision you'll ever make in your life is not who you voted for in, January, in, in November, not who's sworn in on January 20th. That's not the most important event that will ever happen, not the most important decision you've ever made. And the most important decision anybody anywhere will ever make is what are you going to do with the gospel? What are you going to do with the Bible? What are you going to do with the message of Christ and the message of salvation? So it says here, do not refuse him. Uh, take heed that you not refuse him who is speaking. Well, who is this that is speaking here? Well, it's no ordinary person. Uh, Christ is the speaker here. Oh, how do we know that? Well, look what the text says. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Well, who warns from heaven? Well, it's Christ. And what this is talking about as we go on through this is the people of old, the church of old, again and again and again rebelled against God. And we read that they really rejected the gospel in the Old Testament. And so here there is, again, this argumentation from the lesser to the greater. God is speaking. And he speaks two ways. And we do see that through the scriptures. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day forth, pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So there is that General revelation of God that is seen in the creation itself, the orderliness of it. We do not live in a universe of chance. That's one of the things, the silliness of evolution. Somehow, in some way, a quirk of chance caused products to be produced that were orderly and succinct and perfectly organized. I love in Psalm 139, the more you study the human body... The more you study how cell works, I'm not a doctor. I was at a hospital one time. I started asking all these questions. The man said, are you a physician? I said, no, I'm just sick a lot. The way the, the, the body works is magnificent. It's just amazing to me. And it is not a product of chance. It is a product of wonderful engineering. So the heavens declared the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. So this general revelation, as it is called by the theologians, demonstrates the reality of a God. And yet that general revelation is not sufficient to bring salvation. And so God gave us his gospel in what we call specific or special revelation through prophets and through dreams, through instruction given in the, in the, uh, the sacraments which pointed to one who was to come. And then again, it says in the last days, he has spoken to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says here, see to it that you do not refuse him. See to it that you do not reject him. See to it that you listen, he says here in the text. Because if you do refuse him, if you reject Christ, well, what is left is nothing but condemnation before the living God. And we read in the scriptures, it is a dreadful thing. To fall into the hands 
of an angry God. God, by nature, brings judgment against sin and wickedness. And thus the gospel, God brought sin and brought condemnation against his son instead of bringing that against us to the devastation of rejection. The devastation of rejection, if they did not escape in the Old Testament, if they suffered the consequence of hating God, and that's what rejection of Christ is, a hatred of God, if they did not escape, with the limited revelation that they had, with the limited knowledge that they had, the limited understanding that they had, how much more are we going to suffer? He says here in the text. So there's that warning there that we will not escape if we reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our God. And the day will come when people will give an account as it reads in the scriptures, for the deeds done in the body, even the church, although ours will not be a judgment of condemnation. That will not happen to us as God's people. And so in the Old Testament, that generation, as you remember, they refused to go in and take the land. What happened was they died in the wilderness. Forty years they were in the wilderness wandering about because they refused to be obedient to God. So we see here that whether we are at home in the body, uh, we make it our aim to please him. That's our goal. We please him in our actions. We please him in our attitudes. We please him in the way we go about being husbands. We please him in the way that we go about being wives and parents and children and church members. Does God care what kind of church member you are? Yeah, he does. He doesn't need care what kind of church member you are. And so present-day actions have eternal consequences for the Christian. We will not be judged in condemnation, but we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ as given account for the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. And the final judgment, listen to this, the final judgment of God, which is promised to come when God's time, when it's, you know, it's it says in the Scripture, not even the angels know when that day is. Christ said, the Son of Man... While I'm here, I don't know when it is. I know it's coming, but I don't know when it is. He said, not even the angels in heaven know when that day is. But we do know that it's coming. <clears throat> it's like a man on death row. I used to visit men on death row. It's been a long time since I've been up there to see anybody. But they knew their day was coming. They were going to get a date. And one I visited for several years, Steve Nethery, uh, killed a police officer. Uh, and the judge initially gave him the day to die on the police officer's birthday. He said, I want you to remember this man. And they changed it. It's automatic appeal. You get death sentence in Texas, automatic appeal. But anyway, uh, Steve finally got uh, his date, and it stuck. So he knew it was coming. I just didn't know when. We need to have that kind of certainty. We know it's coming. But we don't know when. But let there be no doubt at all in our thinking. The day is coming when the end of all things as we know them will come to pass. And so it says again here in the text, Yet once more I will shake not only the heavens but the earth. And I think the first reference is to Mount Sinai where there was the shaking and there was the, the thundering of the voice and there was the smoke and there was that... 
theophany on top of the mountain where there was a law that was being given and the people knowing uh, full well that they were lawbreakers. So we can't bear with this. Uh, we, we can't stand this. Moses, you, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. We can't stand this. So he says, once more, I'm going to shake things up. Once more, things are going to be shaken. But not everything is going to pass. Again, look at the text. Yes, what, yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. You know, we were told in the Bible uh, not to treasure the things that are given to pass away, but treasure the things that are eternal. Right here it says these things are going to be removed. Well, what is that that's going to be removed? Well, all things of the earth, all things that are parts in essence of the fall, uh, Satan himself and the angels that are doing his biddings, the fallen angels, those will be shaken. And there will be no more. This is speaking of the second coming. This is speaking of the final judgment of God. Much less shall we escape if we reject the gospel. William Barclay said this, If a man merits condemnation for neglecting the imperfect message of the law, how much more does he merit for neglecting the perfect message of the gospel? Because the gospel is the full revelation of God. There is laid on man who hears it a double and a terrible responsibility. And his condemnation must be all the more if he rejects it. A shaking of things. And that shaking includes judgment. On the part of those who hate God. And remember what you read in the scriptures. They'll be crying out for the mountains to fall on them. So terrible will be that day of judgment coming upon them. You see, but understanding this from the perspective of a believer should be something that is encouraging to us, just like in Psalm 73. And the psalmist lived the life of faithfulness. Uh, and he says this, Surely I have washed my hands in innocence for no good purpose. Sheila, I have, I have been faithful, but it's amounted to nothing. Because I look at the wicked. And then I see you. Well, they're, they're very prosperous. They're very successful. Uh, they run the country. They have so much power and influence they can get done whatever it is they want to get done. Surely I have kept my hands clean for no good reason. Because I would like some of that power. I would like some of that wealth. I would like some of that position. That's what's going through the mind of the psalmist, you see. Until he comes to verse 17 of Psalm 73. Until I went into... Listen to this, the sanctuary of God. He brings God to bear upon his heart. You see, those who are envious of the wicked, those who are envious of the arrogant, for a time have forgotten all about God. That's where the psalmist is. I want to have some of the things that they have. They don't struggle like I struggle week to week, month to month to pay bills. They don't have that. They can pay for good medical care. I can't do that. They, they have children that are successful. Mine aren't so successful. That's what he's saying there. Where's God in all this? Surely in vain I have kept myself pure. In vain I have followed God. And then again, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and I determined 
their end. God is a God of justice. And the wicked will pay for their wicked deeds. Those who persecute the church, those who come after the church, unless they, by God's grace, are converted, they will pay for their deeds. The things that will be shaken, it says here in the text, one more time, there will be a great shaking. So that what will remain are the things that are eternal. The things that are lasting, the things that are part of the kingdom of God here as the earth is renewed. I don't know about you all, but I look forward to the day of never being tempted again. I look forward to the day of never uh, uh, having to deal with the effects of the fall again. Well, that day is coming. According to what the scriptures and according to what is written here in the text. And because of that, you see, he says this, let us therefore be grateful for receiving such a kingdom. What is our proper response to this great grace of God to us? Well, it is a recognition that we are there by God's grace. And we are going to continue in that by God's grace. And therefore, we should be grateful to our God for his work of including us in the kingdom. And of giving us such great hope and blessings in the world to come. Thanksgiving is something that is obligatory in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Charlie Chase, some of you know Charlie, I think. Uh, did a series here. I'd love to have Charlie come back sometime. Dr. Piper is supposed to come sometime in the, uh, I don't know, February or March or something. We keep changing the date. But Charlie's sermon was this. Uh, the theme of his, of his certain, a series of sermons was this, that uh, ingratitude is our greatest sin. Ingratitude to God, he said, is the greatest sin that we can possibly commit. And so the Bible then throughout the Old and the New Testament speak to us about the necessity, indeed the obligation, of being grateful to God. Thanksgiving uh, was obligatory in the part of the Old Testament people. The word occurs 37 times in the Old Testament, most of those in the book of the Psalms. It is found 24 times in the book of Psalms, of the Psalms. And in Jonah, when Jonah's grateful that the uh, Lord heard him when he was there in the belly of that big, great fish, and yet his life was spared for those days, and he became a type of Christ for the New Testament reality of the uh, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It is used in the New Testament 38 times, either thanksgiving to God, our thanksgiving to Christ. That was when one of the ten lepers came back. You remember Jesus healed those ten lepers? And they all went away happy that they could now go into restaurants. They could now go to an inn. They could now go to their families. They could now go to the temple. And none of them thanked him for it. Except one who came back. That's the same word here. A sincere gratitude. Therefore, let us be grateful. It is a command, and it is reasonable to do so. Are you grateful to God 
for the work of grace he has shown you and bringing you into his kingdom. And do you treasure that more than you treasure anything else in the world? The church has undergone persecution throughout the ages, but the church has remained and the church will continue to remain. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to worship. In a political climate that is an upheaval of society, we are supposed to worship. In a society when COVID has rearranged the way that we live, we are supposed to worship with reverence and awe. We read here in the text, because God is a consuming fire. So you see the consequence of rejecting the gospel is unspeakable horror. God is a consuming fire. So you see why we should be grateful, and you see why we should worship, no matter what the circumstances are that we face. You also see why it is that we should love one another, because we are all of the same family. It's a blessing to see a family that everybody gets along well. I had a family that was related to me that were not a part of my immediate family, but they were, well, I guess they were immediate. Their aunt and uncle, was that immediate family? Is that immediate? Don't know. I don't either. <laughs> anyway, it wasn't my aunt and uncle and their children. Uh, there, was, there, was, there was always conflict, uh, always turmoil. Well, what a blessing to see families and to have families that are not like that. Well, that's how we should be as the children of Christ, as the children of God. We should be those who love one another and get along with one another and hope the best for one another and pray the best for one another and consider others as more important than ourselves because God cares how we relate to one another. He cares. And Christ has brought us to peace, not to war. He's brought us to peace. As for every single individual in the church, in the kingdom of Christ, he has called us to peace. And as I've said before, the best days for us are yet to come. And as you live in patience, you remember this. You live in obedience because our God is a consuming fire. And he will bring retribution upon the wicked. Let's pray.